Hey, this is Eric, and you're listening to the Story Church Podcast. Our podcast features audio from Sunday mornings at Story Church in Peru, Indiana, a community on the mission of connecting people's story to God's story. If you'd like to connect with us further, check out storyperu.com. Our hope is that today's episode helps you take your next step on your faith journey. Christmas is coming up, and I think one of the best parts of the Christmas season for me these past few years is getting to experience it once again through the eyes of a child. Uh, My daughter, like, she's five years old, so, like, I feel like three, four, and five, she, like, gets it now. She is in peak Christmas season where, like, she is so excited. Uh, We ended up this year, she has, like, three different Advent things that we're doing together uh, because my sister-in-law gave us a Jesse tree, which is kind of like a spiritual Jesus-focused journey towards Christmas that we're doing together that involves reading the Bible, and it's super cool. Uh, Ashley and I got Eden a Paw Patrol advent calendar because she is all about Paw Patrol right now. And then we didn't know it, but uh, some of our friends also got Eden and kind of me a, a Lego Star Wars advent calendar. So we're like, yeah, right? It's awesome. So we're doing it every morning where it's like, she opens up the little door, she gets her Paw Patrol thing, and I'm like, let's do the Legos. And so we sit there and we build our little Lego thing. And it's this fun little ritual that we have. But because Advent is essentially this countdown to Christmas, right? You open the door each day and you're getting closer and closer. Every day right now, Eden asks the quintessential kid question, is it Christmas today? Right? Like she's waiting, she's anticipating. She's actually been telling me like, I wish it was Christmas every day, (laughs) which I want to sing the SNL song, but I don't. So uh, the other thing that Eden is kind of having a hard time wrapping her head around this season is the concept of her list to Santa Uh, because she's made a list. She did the old school thing. We got like the Amazon catalog. Do you guys remember the JCPenney catalog back in our day? Yeah, so it's Amazon now, but they did the same thing. We cut out the pictures and we glued them on her paper that she's going to give to Santa, but she doesn't understand that it's like a a wish list or or like a hope for list. She just thinks she's getting it all. So like every time she talks to me about it, she's like, this is what Santa is bringing me. (laughs) Like I'm going to get this and I'm going to get that, and little does she know. I know the guy, right? So... We'll see how that works out. But do you remember what it was like to be a kid at Christmas time? Like just all the anticipation, all the excitement. I used to sneak downstairs early, like the the stereotypical sneak over and look at the tree and see if like Santa came and if the gifts were there. Uh, And and that was always what it centered around, right? That hope and that excitement around what gift was going to be under the tree. What was I going to get that year? What was it going to be? What was going to be the surprising thing? There's just all that anticipation. And I was thinking about some of the gifts that I really hoped for and was excited for when I was a kid, and I thought I'd just share them with you for fun. Uh, This gift is actually a gift that keeps on giving. It's not the Jelly of the Month Club, uh, but it's these Star Wars action figures. So I have a tub full of these at my parents' house. Every year I would get the little Kenner dolls like this and uh, play with them and just keep adding and adding to the set. So that was really cool when I was a kid. I don't know why Luke is so ripped. Uh, (laughs) Apparently 1990s Luke Skywalker was working on his pecs or something. He does not look like that in the movie. But at any rate, it's fun because now uh, my mom watches Eden, and so Eden, my daughter, is playing with these Star Wars toys that I had as a kid, and it's like I get to relive it all over again. So it was always a good time if I got a new uh, Star Wars action figure. Later, like early 2000s, I really, really, really wanted the Lego Movie Maker set. So this was like right at the dawn of the internet being in people's houses and uh, computers being like a normal thing and all that. And and so this was a Lego set, but it was like stop motion. You had that little camera right there. That was an actual camera. And you can 
create real movies. You know it's real because Steven Spielberg signed the box. Uh, and, and like you would set this thing up and you would hit the little button and it would do frame by frame. You could make like little Lego movies and it was amazing. Later in life, uh, that camera also worked as a webcam, which I don't know if my parents knew that when they bought it. That's life, right? It's the difficulty of parenting. Um, and then maybe the Christmas I remember anticipating but also being like just blown away the most by the gift that was under the tree was the year that my brother and I got our first Xbox. And just so that we can all experience the wonder and the hope together, uh, I asked that we could play like the original Xbox startup sequence. So yeah. just for all of us, check this out. Yes. <laughs> right? Like I remember that Christmas, like, the power is like, like Wow, video games. Like, we spent the whole day, my brother and I, um, I don't remember how old I was, not old enough, but my parents got me Tom Clancy's Splinter Cell, which is like a spy game, basically. And uh, my brother and I sat there playing a somewhat violent video game all Christmas long, because it's the reason for the season, right? But um, there's nothing like it, just anticipating those gifts. And just to balance this out, um, I wanted to share with you one of the worst gifts I ever got to. Uh, this is from my step-grandma, who is an amazing, sweet lady. Uh, yeah, just really loved us and went above and beyond. But it was like right after 9-11 happened that next Christmas, uh, we went to her house. We were kind of just getting to know her at that point. She had just joined the family. And she got me, not the boot, okay? She got me an American flag cowboy boot ornament, like on Christmas. So I'm like, wow, why? <laughs> like, <laughs> do I put it on the tree now for two more days? And I guess I'll never forget her. I don't know. It was. I know she meant well, but as a kid, it's just like, this, thank you, good. And then we moved on. But uh, I remember what it felt like to, to long for that gift under the tree, right? You probably all remember it, the excitement that's wrapped up in it. And uh, we're talking about hope today, if you haven't caught on. And hope <laughs> is, is one thing as it relates to gifts, right? Hope's one thing. But as we become adults, it is such a bigger thing uh, when hope needs to show up in our lives, isn't it? L like, it's such a... Uh, an emotionally charged things, when we're hoping for something to be different or for something to happen in our lives. I think there's something about becoming an adult that makes hope feel a little more vulnerable for all of us. That, that hope, I don't know, it feels risky. I, I think a lot of us, uh, hope can feel scary because maybe we've had our hopes let down before. And, and maybe you're saying like, man, I hope that my job looks different next year. Or, or I hope that my family dynamic, my relationships look different next year, and maybe you've heard somebody say, don't get your hopes up, right? We, we drift into that, don't get your hopes up, because we've all experienced what it's like to have our hopes dashed. We've all experienced the pain of things not coming through and felt that sting of defeat, and it can be so incredibly difficult. Again, it's a vulnerable thing for us as adults to admit our hopes and our dreams and the things that we long for, and maybe for some of you today, you're in a season this Christmas where hope feels like the farthest thing away. Like there's some circumstance happening in your life, whether it's financially or with your health or with a relationship, where it just feels like maybe this season, all you can do is cry out to God and hope he hears you, right? It just, there's stuff that doesn't make sense or stuff that you can't quite work out and you feel that sense of like, God, where are you at in the midst of this? Like life and hope often are, are a lot more complicated than just opening a gift under a Christmas tree on Christmas morning. But what we're going to do today, uh, I'll give you the punchline early, kind of like we did last week. What I hope you can discover with me today as we're preparing for Christmas is that God offers us a hope for the future that can change us in the present as well. That the kind of hope that God offers to us, it's not just some far off, far away, maybe someday pie in the sky hope, 
but it's hope that can actually change things for all of us right here and right now. And again, the series we're in, it's called BC. We've made that stand for before Christmas, and what we're doing is looking at the backstory to the main story of Christmas. We're looking at some of the promises that God made specifically through people known as prophets when he would predict the way that he was going to change things and the way that he was going to ultimately rescue and save the world. And what we said last week is it's helpful for us to do this, to go back and look at those promises and see how God fulfilled them because when we understand that God was faithful to us then, it can help us trust that God will be faithful to us now. When we look back and we see that God lived up to his promises, it can remind us that he still does that in our lives today. And maybe today it can be a source of hope for each of us. Uh, But the Old Testament, first half of the Bible, it tells the story of God's people before Jesus came onto the scene. And we've been specifically looking at this era or this time frame known as the Age of Kings, where uh, Israel had become a nation, there were kings that ruled over Israel, Most of them were pretty bad, some of them were good, Uh, but these kings basically decided if the people followed God or if they didn't. They decided the way uh, that the people went. And so God would send these prophets to speak on his behalf to the rulers and to the people in power, often with specific messages. Occasionally it was comforting, occasionally it was hopeful, more often than not, the prophets showed up and they confronted the rulers about the ways that they weren't actually following God. They would offer warnings or challenges, and as you can imagine, often these messages were not well received by the rulers. Uh, We told you last week that in Hebrew, the word that we know as prophet literally translates uh, to mean to see because the prophets were people who saw the things happening in the world that nobody else wanted to talk about. They were the ones who pointed out the problems that were happening amongst the people of God. And so they would offer this message from God and you would think the people would listen, but time and time again, the rulers ignored what the prophets had to say. And uh, in this age of kings, Uh, Israel reached a point, we'll show you a map, where the kingdom was split into two. In the north, there was the kingdom of Israel, and then in the south, it split off, and there was the kingdom of Judah. And both of these kingdoms uh, throughout this age ended up becoming conquered. Uh, The north was conquered by the Assyrians, and then southern Israel eventually was conquered by the Babylonians. And, And for the people living in those days, everything that they knew was turned upside down. I mean, they were in one of those seasons where hope didn't seem to be anywhere around. Life as they knew it was turned upside down, and their circumstances seemed out of control. And so in the midst of all of that chaos, once again, uh, we find another prophet who shows up. Last week, we talked about the prophet Micah, who predicted peace that would come. And uh, this week, we're going to look at the prophet Jeremiah, who shows up in the midst of this mess. And uh, he comes a little bit later than Micah, actually. It's around the year uh, 627. And uh, Jesus, or Jesus, sorry, Jeremiah was about 16 years old when God shows up and God gives him this like great calling on his life. Uh, It's recorded in Jeremiah chapter one. Uh, God shows up and says to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you or I made you holy. He says, I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. No pressure, right? Like God shows up and is like, hey, I've got a big job for you. And I can imagine uh, Jeremiah felt all of the intensity, like all the anticipation, all of the hope, all of the like reverence for this big assignment that he was given, probably a little bit of the like, can I really do this? Is this really my job? Uh, But Jeremiah ends up uh, going out and completing this mission that God gave him to go and be a prophet, to go and be his mouthpiece to the people. And uh, Jeremiah earned himself a nickname along the way. Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. Sounds like a good guy to hang out with at a party, right? Uh, Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet because he was crying all the time. 
And, and the reason that Jeremiah was crying all the time wasn't just because he was a little bit emotional or artistic or whatever, but Jeremiah uh, was crying all the time and was known as the weeping prophet because in Jeremiah's lifetime, he witnessed some of the most heartbreaking events that had happened in the people of God. He, he witnessed all of this chaos. He witnessed God's people being overthrown and oppressed, and he had every reason to feel completely and utterly hopeless. And yet, that's exactly the promise that God offers through Jeremiah, is this promise that one day hope will be restored. We did this last week, so I figured I'd stick with it. Uh, I'm going to read you the night before Christmas version of Jeremiah's story, okay? So feel all fun and festive for just a second. It was a thousand years before Christmas, around 930 BC. Israel split into two kingdoms led by mostly bad kings. So God sent the prophets to speak words that were true, but nobody listened, and the kingdoms fell through. In 587, the prophet Jeremiah warns his city, the Babylonians have Jerusalem surrounded. It didn't look pretty. But the king doesn't believe it. He thinks they can still win. So he finds a jail cell for Jeremiah and proceeds to throw him in. He's called the weeping prophet. He was at the end of his rope. But even in a dark prison cell, God gives Jeremiah hope. I didn't write that. Okay, so don't be that impressed. But that's the context. That's the context of Jeremiah's life, okay? He's, he's this prophet constantly saying, hey, God's telling us to do this, and the people don't listen. The rulers don't listen. He is eventually thrown into a prison cell. And again, like if you're in a season right now where hope seems hard to come by, isn't that what it feels like sometimes? Like you're just trapped in a cell, and you can't find the way out. You can't see the light. You don't know uh, which way to go from here. In the midst of that context is where God shows up and offers this promise to Jeremiah. God speaks to Jeremiah in the dark prison cell, and he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. There's two kingdoms, right? In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. So God shows up in this prison cell to Jeremiah and he basically says, look, I see where you're at. Okay, I, I know it's crazy right now and you're not where you ought to be, right? Your circumstances are bad and things look bad and it doesn't feel like there's a lot of hope, but he shows up and he says, I promise a better day is coming. I promise one day I'm gonna set this right. He, he shows up and basically says to Jeremiah, hey, death and destruction and evil feel like they're in charge right now, but death and destruction and evil don't have the final word. That, that there's a better ending to the story that's coming. And, and when you're in those moments, that's hard to believe, isn't it? Even if somebody shows up and they tell you, like, it's going to be okay, or better days are coming, or just tough it out, it's hard. It's hard to actually have that hope and to see that hope when our circumstances don't look that way. And, and for Jeremiah, just like Micah before him, Jeremiah was the one who received this promise. Jeremiah is the one who announced this promise to the people. But Jeremiah didn't live to see the promise fulfilled uh, because it was 600 years later when Jesus shows up on the scene. And Jesus shows up, and as Luke, uh, the doctor, who thoroughly investigated the details of Jesus' life, as Luke records it, he says this, that in those days, 600 years after Jeremiah received that promise, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all of the world should be registered. So in this day, Rome ruled the world. Rome, whatever they said, was whatever people did. And Caesar decided everybody needs to come and give an account for where they are and where they're from. So this huge initiative went out for people to take a census, which meant travel for everybody during the busy holiday season, right? It's chaotic. Uh, and here's what happened. It says that Joseph also went from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, 
to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Again, we hear this story, right, again and again throughout this season. Uh, But if you can imagine, in their context, the, the circumstances that didn't look hopeful by any means, if anything, that first Christmas was an annoyance up to that point. I've never been pregnant, if that's not obvious, uh, (laughs) but it's a long journey, okay, that they were on together. It's a long thing that they were doing, traveling together. It was probably roughly like 85 miles, and they didn't have Ubers or cars, right? They were walking, or as we know from the story, maybe on a donkey at best. Can you imagine 85 miles walking, nine months pregnant, like, it's hard enough just nine months pregnant, like let alone the long journey and, and them traveling along that way. And again, sometimes life feels like that, doesn't it? It's like everything is work and everything is effort and it feels like maybe hopeless, maybe like the finish line is farther away than you feel like you can go. But they're on this journey together because the town of Bethlehem is ultimately where Joseph is from. And because Caesar issued this decree that they have to give an account, they have to give a census, uh, they are going back to Joseph's hometown to be present for the census. And and what happens in this moment is it fulfills this prophecy that was made earlier through Jeremiah where he says a branch of David will arise or will be be lifted up. Uh, He's saying that it's somebody from the family or from the family line of David. And maybe you're like, yeah, but Joseph's not Jesus's real dad, right? And so just for fun, I have some kind of irreverent memes that make me laugh about Joseph. Uh, I saw this one with his t-shirt on. He says, I'm not the stepdad. I'm just the dad that stepped up, (laughs) Joseph. And and then maybe a little more, not okay, but it made me laugh, so hopefully you still accept me. Uh, I saw this one. It says, according to our test results, Joseph, you are not the father. Mari Christmas. I know, it's bad. I'm sorry. It's a little sacrilegious maybe, but thanks for going there with me. So, like, the reason it's a big deal that Joseph is Jesus' earthly dad is because uh, Joseph was counted along the ancestral line of King David, that he was actually this direct descendant of King David. And so what that means is that Jesus, by association with Joseph, fulfills this promise that was made, that a new king was going to come, that, that a king was going to come from the line of David who would fulfill all of these promises that God had made all of these years earlier. And uh, they get to Bethlehem. And here's what happens. It says, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And that's the reason that we celebrate this season. It's the reason that that Christmas is such a huge deal. I mean, the presents are great and, and all the festivities and all the fun is amazing. But the savior that Jeremiah promised, that this person who is gonna bring hope and can bring hope for all of us today, actually arrived on the scene, that God actually fulfilled his promise, although it was 600 years later, Jesus arrives. Uh, and here's the thing. We talk about this stuff a lot. We talk about hope at Christmas time. Sometimes we talk about the way that Jesus rescued us. And sometimes I think those ideas, while they're, they sound good, right? They're, they're nice Christian things for us to say. Sometimes they're just kind of like out there. Like maybe we agree with it intellectually, but we don't ever like tease out what it really means. I, I think the idea that Jesus rescued us is one of those ideas. Like in church, we're just kind of like, yeah, that seems right. But what does that really mean? Like what did Jesus really rescue us from? What does it really mean for us to have hope in that rescue that he provided? Uh, Jeremiah actually spelled this out in his prophecy. 
Because Jeremiah, uh, as he was talking about this descendant of David who was going to come and who was going to rule and who was going to bring hope for the people, uh, he says this. He says, this is the name by which this branch, this leader, will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. And that might not seem exciting to you on the surface once again, because righteousness isn't really a word that we throw out a lot either. Like, pretty much only two type of people uh, talk about righteousness. We talk about righteousness in our culture in terms of self-righteousness, right? Like that person, they're holier than thou. They think that they're so righteous. And it's kind of like a criticism. Uh, So that's way number one. Way number two is if you're crush the turtle, right? Like 80s surfer, righteous. That's kind of all that we know about righteousness. But in ancient Israel, in, in Jewish faith, righteousness was everything. Like righteousness was a huge deal. Righteousness was actually a deeply relational word. And and righteousness tended to show up in their practice of their faith uh, kind of in two equal or or complementary ways. There was this idea of being righteous before the law. In other words, doing all the right things, doing the things that you were supposed to do uh, as a good uh, Jewish person. And then there was righteousness within the community. That righteousness kind of carried this double meaning. It meant that you were doing the right things, but it also meant that you were accepted within the community because, uh, again, cleanliness and uncleanliness and righteousness and these laws, they were a huge deal as it relates to their faith. Uh, Somebody who is righteous, at its most simple terms, is somebody who is right with God, somebody who is blameless, somebody who's innocent, somebody who's always just. And I think what's probably obvious to us, if we're willing to be honest in the room today, is that that's impossible for us, right? Like, we don't always get it right. The scorecard, it might be impressive, okay? Yours is probably better than mine, but we still don't always get it right. Like, none of us actually nail it. In fact, the Apostle Paul uh, writes exactly that in his letter to the church in Rome. He, He says it pretty plainly. He says, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. And I love that he had to add that. In my mind, it's like he was saying it. He's like, guys, there's no one righteous. And some guy in the back's like, yeah, but what about Gary? He's like, not even one. Okay? Like, like nobody is righteous. He's saying we all miss the mark. We all mess up. And uh, we might be right some of the time, right? But, but none of us are right all the time. And that's what makes Jeremiah's promise and its fulfillment in Jesus so powerful. It's what the rescue actually means because Jeremiah had this promise that the Lord is our righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. That's a shift, right? That's different than the Lord demands our righteousness. That's kind of what religious culture says of us, right? If you do good enough, if you clean up your act enough, then you're acceptable to God. That's not the promise that Jeremiah made, and that's not the, the promise that arrives in Jesus. He says the Lord is our righteousness, because Jesus, in this mysterious way, was fully God and fully man at the same time. And Jesus is the only one who ever actually did it. The only one who ever actually lived that blameless, just life. The only one who ever walked fully in step with God as he lived his life on this earth. And what's so remarkable is what Jesus did for us to rescue us. Paul says it in this way uh, in his letter to the church in Corinth. He says, God made him who had no sin, that's Jesus, to become or to be sin for us so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. It's a scandal, right? It's this extraordinary exchange that Jesus, who was perfect, became brokenness. And all of us who are broken benefit from it because in Christ, we can become righteous. Uh, Martin Luther uh, calls this the great exchange, that, that 
that Jesus actually takes on our brokenness, past and future. He takes it all on himself, and he gives back to us his righteousness. And, and something really significant, I think, that probably all of us have overlooked. Do you know what the most common description for Christians is in the New Testament? The, the most common way that Christians are kind of instructed to think about themselves? It's that phrase, in Christ. In Christ, because it is a game changer for us when we understand what it means about ourselves, who we are if we find ourselves in Christ. It means that we can be made right with God even though our record isn't perfect. It means that all of our unrighteousness, all of the stuff that holds us back, can be given to him. And in return, we receive his righteousness, which, by the way, is what makes it a hopeful thing. Righteousness isn't earned. It's received. Again, this is a shift from the way that religion has functioned uh, all the way up to this point, all the way up until Jesus arrives, right? If you want to be right with God back in the day, you followed the law and you were right in the community. And if you were out, you had to do a lot to get back in. But Jesus shows up and he goes, no, 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 no. I'm going to take your brokenness and I'm going to give you my righteousness as a gift. You don't earn it. You can't unearn it. You're accepted as a son, as a daughter of God. No matter how dark things seem, no matter what your circumstances are, if you're in Christ, there is hope. If you're in Christ, a morning will come someday. A better day will come. In Jesus, we can have hope. And this is why hope is such a big deal. Hope can change the game for us. When we really believe, even if we're in the midst of difficulty, or even if we're in the midst of uncertainty, if we really believe that tomorrow can be better than today whenever we get there, it can change things for us. There was actually a study uh, that was done in the 1950s, and uh, I guess a couple of disclaimers, no animals were hurt in the making of this sermon, okay? Uh, well, not recently at least. Uh, and it was in the 1950s, and it was just kind of the way that we did things there. So track with me here. Basically, this experiment it happened at John Hopkins University, and they took a big tank of water, and they took a bunch of rats, and they dropped the rats in the tank of water, and they just timed to see how long they could swim before they drowned. Okay, so rats are gross anyway, so it's fine. But like, they timed them. They saw how long these rats could keep swimming until they wore out and they drowned. Uh, anybody have a guess how long, on average, the rats could make it on their own? Two days. Wow. You have a high confidence in rats. Uh, it was 10 minutes. Okay, 10 minutes. These rats, initially, they were swimming, 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 swimming. 10 minutes passed by, and, and then they would ultimately drown. So they did another round of the experiment, but they changed one thing. The rats are dumped into the tank, and then about like 20 or 30 seconds in, they grabbed the rats, pulled them out of the water for a second, and put them back in. And they did that like two or three times. Just a short amount of time into them swimming. They grabbed the rats, they pulled them out, they put them back in. Do you know how long the rats could swim that time around? Yeah, I'll tell you, two days barely scratches the surface. On average, the rats in the second group swam for 60 hours. Yeah, that's insane, right? We went from 10 minutes to 60 hours. Like, it's crazy multiplier. And what did they introduce to the equation? A little bit of hope, right? Those rats were swimming, and they pulled them out, and they're like, <gasps> relief, maybe this will stop. And then they dropped them back in, and it didn't. But the point <laughs> is they were able to keep going because they had hope. Hope changed everything in terms of those rats' capacity and ability to do what they were trying to do. And here's what's important for us today. We are way more important to God than rats, okay? But hope can do the same thing. When hope shows up in our story, it can give us the capacity to keep going. 
It can give us a different perspective. And, and what I hope you see today is that you can have hope this season no matter what your circumstances look like. I'm not trying to gloss over difficulty. I'm not trying to ignore the pain or the uncertainty that you may be facing, but I am trying to tell you that a better day is still possible as long as God's involved, as long as Jesus is in the equation. And, and for me, I, I mean, I've experienced this in life. We probably all have, where there's those moments where life is difficult and uh, we're just trying to like find a little bit of hope somewhere and then maybe like a song comes on the radio and, and a lyric gives you a little glimmer of hope, right? Gives you a little hope that maybe things can be better. Uh, for me, a lot of times hope shows up when a friend or, or one of you reaches out and, and like expresses some kindness in some way. Like you guys are amazing. Sometimes I'll just end up with like cards on my desk and people just write either like prayers or hey, I'm thinking of you or hey, I noticed this. Like it, I talk a lot about like the bad emails that pastors get, which that's true too, but it, it can be a source of hope when somebody's just like, hey, you're doing a good job or hey, I, I noticed you or hey, I'm cheering you on. And, and we've all hopefully experienced that one way or another. Somebody noticing us in a difficult moment, coming alongside us, and it gives us a moment of hope. There's an uh, author and a pastor named Henry Nouwen. We actually looked at a quote of his last week as well, but Henry, it, it was incredible. Um, he actually was a priest who moved into a home for people with mental disabilities, not because he had any disabilities or differences per se, but because he wanted to express love to people who did struggle with it. So, so he just went and he lived in this institution and got to know this community. Uh, but one time he said this, he says, I found it very important in my own life to try to let go of my wishes and instead to live in hope. I'm finding that when I choose to let go of my sometimes petty and superficial wishes and trust that my life is precious and meaningful in the eyes of God, something really new, something beyond my expectations begins to happen for me. And I love the way he phrases that, that, that it's important to try and let go of my wishes and instead to live in hope because the hope that we're talking about today, it's not just wishful thinking. Okay, it's not just like, man, I hope my gift is under the tree that I want really bad. It's not Eden's list to Santa, okay? It, instead, it's this hope that we can be sure of. It, it's a hope that we can be confident in. Even when life is chaotic, even when our circumstances change, this is way more than just fingers crossed, I hope things work out. This is the confidence that God knows you, that God loves you, and that God is with you, even in the midst of whatever you may be facing. And it's how we're called to live. I was thinking about this a little bit today. Um, a couple years back, I lost a friend way too young, and uh, I'm the pastor, so I also got to officiate his services, which is incredibly difficult for me. Um, but when I did that, I remember, honestly, it was incredibly difficult, and I was there like the day of, like, I don't know what to say. Right? I'm grieving and, and I'm trying to figure this out. But what ended up popping into my mind uh, was this idea of talking about defiant joy. A, a joy that, while life is unfair sometimes and, and circumstances are difficult, understands that God still uses it all for good. And, and that the thing that maybe we're actually called to, those of us who follow Jesus, might be to stand in defiant joy or defiant hope against the parts of our world that look broken. That we could actually be people who believe that Jeremiah's promise that God's promise through Jeremiah is true, that all of the bad does not have the final word, that it, it still hurts, right? that, that it's still difficult, but that we have a hope that is above and beyond anything that we face in this life, and that can give us confidence. Uh, the author of, of Hebrews, I don't have it on the screen, but he wrote one time, or she wrote, that we have this hope 
as an anchor for our souls. In other words, this hope that we have in Jesus can keep us grounded when life feels unsettled. Paul said it this way in his letter to the church in Rome. He said, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what our lives are meant to be marked by, joy and hope even in the midst of potential difficulty. Elsewhere, Paul wrote this uh, to the church in Ephesus. He said, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. There's a lot of kind of big language in there, but basically he's saying like, I hope you understand what you have access to in Jesus. I hope you understand what it means if you live your life in Christ. It means you can have confidence even when life is difficult. Or again, God said this to the prophet Jeremiah. He says to Jeremiah, I know the plans that I have for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. And listen, we pass that around at graduation time, right? We put it on little plaques and we give it to to graduates to say, go get them, tiger. But like, it's so much bigger than that. We have a hope that can make us feel confident, that can make us feel secure. There's an author uh, named Rebecca Solnit who said this one time. She says, hope is the belief that what we do matters, even though how and when it may matter, who and what it may impact, are not things that we can know beforehand. Hope is the belief that what we do matters, even if we don't know how it matters. And I was thinking about that. Uh, I had a friend in high school. Her name was Victoria. And uh, we didn't really know each other super well to start. I was a band nerd, and she was in band as well. Uh, She was kind of like a goth emo kid or whatever back in the day, like we're dark makeup and dark clothes all the time. It just seemed kind of down. But I ended up meeting Victoria because I played saxophone back in the day but got reassigned to play clarinet for my senior year because the clarinet section of the band apparently needed help and I was the best solution, which was a different topic for a different day. But, but what that meant is I ended up sitting next to Victoria uh, during band every single week. And as we would sit there, we weren't like best friends or anything, but we would just kind of talk. I would try and be nice to her and we would laugh about other stuff going on in band and we did our thing. Really ordinary everyday high school Eric stuff, right? Like no, nothing extraordinary. Until I found out uh, my senior year, I was the drum major of our marching band and we always did this like candlelight ceremony that was like the mile marker moment for our our little season. Uh, But I remember it was at that ceremony, Victoria comes up to me and she goes, hey, you don't know this, but all those years that you sat next to me in the clarinet section, she's like, I I was struggling with thoughts of self-harm, thoughts of suicide, like I, I I was having a hard time. And do you know what helped me get through that? Was that you were nice to me. And I'm just like, what? Like, I had no idea. I didn't even know I was that nice, to be honest with you. I was just like, really? (laughs) Like, it's incredible. But the point is that, like, you never know. You never know what a hopeful outlook will do for the people around you. You never know what living in that hope that tomorrow can be better than today can do, not only for yourself, but for the people around you. I'll wrap up uh, with one more quote from a, a priest named Richard Rohr, who I love the way he talks about faith. But he describes hope in this way. He says, hope is the patient and trustful willingness to live without full closure, without resolution, and still be content and even happy because our satisfaction is now at another level and our source is beyond ourselves. He's saying hope is this ability to look at your circumstances and instead of going, that's broken, that's not right, that's not good, I don't have what I want, I don't have what I need. I mean, again, there's space for that. 
But instead of living there, hope goes, wait, 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 wait. But tomorrow can be better than today, right? Because I have a hope that can be an anchor for my soul. That, that the God who came to this earth and lived a purely, fully righteous life was willing to give up that righteousness so that we could receive it. That he took on our brokenness so that we wouldn't have to live broken any longer. Our hope isn't grounded in our circumstances. And what that means for you and what that means for me is that hope can be this vision of our future that can change us in our present as well. That we don't have to live from circumstance to circumstance or crisis to crisis, but we can have a hope that's secure in our souls and that helps us to live the life that God's called us to live. Let me pray for you. God, I pray this season, um, as all of us have stories, right? All of us have things that maybe we're celebrating this season and then all of us have things that we wish were different. God, I pray that you would meet us in the midst of all of it, that our eyes wouldn't get pulled down into the things that are broken in this world, but that we could actually believe in that great exchange, that you actually fulfilled your promise to Jeremiah and you brought hope because you gave us your righteousness. You gave us your right standing. You made us your sons and your daughters. And when we live out of that identity, it can change everything for us. So God, I pray for my friends here today that whatever they face this next week, they would face it seeing themselves in Christ, seeing themselves uh, with your identity put on their life. And, and God, that with that perspective, we could be people of hope and people of joy and people of confidence and people who bring that same hope and joy and confidence to a world in desperate need of it. We ask all of that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. If you live in or near the Peru, Indiana area, we would love for you to engage with us at one of our weekend gatherings. To find directions, service times, and information about our environments for kids, visit us at storyperu.com.